0: Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Tuesday, June 20th, 2023. I'm Lou DeVizio. Let's get right into the headlines. A decision on whether to refile charges against actor Alec Baldwin in the deadly Rust shooting case is coming less than two months from now. In April, special prosecutors Kerry Morrissey and Jason Lewis dismissed a charge of involuntary manslaughter against Baldwin, without prejudice. That's a legal indicator that the charges could be resurrected. At the time, a source close to the investigation told journalists that there was new evidence related to the gun Baldwin was holding at the time cinematographer Helena Hutchins was shot and killed. According to reporting in the Santa Fe, New Mexican, prosecutors now say the gun has been sent to the state's independent expert, and if it's determined the weapon did not malfunction, they will proceed with the case against Baldwin. That announcement comes as we learn more about the manslaughter charge against film armorer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. In response to a dismissal motion filed by lawyers for Gutierrez-Reed, prosecutors say she was likely hung over on the day of the deadly shooting, accusing her of drinking and smoking cannabis in the evenings. They're accusing Gutierrez-Reed of having a history of reckless conduct. Her lawyers, in turn, cast doubt on the prosecution's case, saying they've resorted to a character assassination. New Mexico State Senator Mark Moores, a Republican serving Albuquerque's Northeast Heights, will not seek re-election. In an interview with the Albuquerque Journal, Morris says he made the decision after speaking with his family. He's one of just two Albuquerque Republicans left in the New Mexico legislature, serving three terms in the Senate. During that time he sponsored, or jointly sponsored, bills allowing college athletes to get paid for endorsements, prohibiting coyote killing contests, and creating a redistricting commission that proposed new political boundary lines. Friday night on New Mexico In Focus, the Line Opinion Panel will talk through what this means for political representation from the state's largest city, and who could step in to fill Moore's seat. Keep an eye on your bank account. The state says it expects to start distributing $690 million in tax rebate payments as early as next week. If you lived in New Mexico and filed a 2021 state tax return, and aren't declared a dependent on someone else's return, you'll be getting an automatic payment of $500. Married couples who filed jointly will get $1,000. The secretary of the state tax and revenue department says rebates will be deposited around June 21st. That's Wednesday. If you received your tax refund through direct deposit, that's how you'll get the rebate check too. Everyone else will get a check in the mail, which will be printed out and sent between June 20th and June 29th. In our first segment of the podcast this week, we head to Chaco Culture National Historical Park, where a decision to halt future extraction leases led to a protest that forced a US cabinet secretary to relocate a planned homecoming event. Joining Gene on the panel, Sean Griswold, editor at Source New Mexico, Merritt Allen from Vox Optima Public Relations, and political psychologist and author Martha Burke. Here's Gene.
1: Interior Secretary Deb Haaland's return to New Mexico was disrupted last weekend. By protesters at Chaco Park, you might have seen the news. The plan was for Ms. Holland to talk about the U.S. Interior Department's 20-year ban on new extraction leases on federal lands within 10 miles of Chaco Canyon. Now, Secretary Holland changed the location of the event to Albuquerque after protesters blocked the road to merit. A group of Navajo Nation landowners who receive financial royalties for oil and gas around Chaco are upset over the secretary's decision. They say it will cost them a chance at leasing revenue. Because their interests are now essentially locked out. Are they right? Is this a basically a financial argument at that level?
2: Well, <clears throat> it, it, it's it's interesting because it was such a small action on the part of Department of Interior. This was mm-hmm. interesting. I read a piece uh, by New Mexico in depth on this yesterday. Mm-hmm. Of over a thousand leases in the area, this only affects fifty of them. Oh wow! So it's really impacting oh. a very small amount of uh, potential drilling activity mm-hmm. uh, in the area. And so I put on my former uh, government public affairs hat and thought about, okay, you know, what, what are the optics? Mm-hmm. And, and, and here's the thing, when you're working for an executive agency and you're in DC, you're looking through the lens of the Washington Post right. and Congress That's and right. maybe the New York Times. That's right. And from that perspective, this looks great. We're saving Chaco yeah. Canyon. Right. And so, and I'm doing my boss's bidding um, I'm saving a national landmark. Um, I'm reducing uh, the impact of a national, impa- reducing the impact of oil and gas on a national mm-hmm. landmark. Mm-hmm. I'm doing something for Native Americans. What could go wrong? That checks off all the positive checks, right? Right, yeah. and the Washington Post is is gonna pick up on that story. They're not yeah. gonna get into the nuance of it um most people at department of the interior do not care what the albuquerque journal thinks that's, that's right. uh so it's a really good washington story yeah. problem is secretary holland is from new mexico that's right, that's right. <laughs> and she's probably going to come back here yep. so this boomeranged quite quite badly for interesting, her interesting and the navajo nation of course is not divided, is not united in their perspective on this. You've got individual landholders Mm -hmm. um, who are very unhappy about this because this is a key source of revenue for them. Mm -hmm. But you've got uh, other individuals who live in the area, their neighbors, who feel like the environmental impacts are hurting them. Mm -hmm. So it's a story where it seems like truly no one is happy.
1: That's a good point there. SEAN, INTERESTINGLY, THE, the uh, all pueblo COUNCIL OF GOVERNORS IS VERY MUCH IN FAVOR OF THE WITHDRAWAL AS IT STANDS NOW. Uh, I'M NOT ASKING YOU TO, to, to SPEAK for THE OTHER SIDE OF IT, BUT, YOU KNOW, IT'S PRETTY CLEAR THEY FEEL THESE PROTECTIONS OF A HISTORIC SITE ARE SACROSANCT. YOU KNOW, IS, is THAT HOW WE SHOULD BE LOOKING AT THIS? At, at, some level? I mean, mm-hmm. wh- where's all Pueblo Council coming from on this, in your view?
3: You know, it's fascinating. You know, you bring up the story, Washington Post and everything. You know, the people who paid attention to this story got a little bit of a taste of some um, inter-tribal issues that happened between that have been going on here before this was yeah. even a state, before any first contact has happened. Mm-hmm. Pueblo people and Navajo people have been in this area for thousands of years, and there have been some skirmishes. There have been some, some issues, and there have been some fights, even in that Chaco area, historically. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a direct line to all of that. And I think what we're seeing out of some of the language with some of the land alloties in the area was a little bit alarming and a little bit surprising. And I think that um, what, what, what you, the stance of the All-Pueblo Council of Governors is doing is that they're looking for tribal solidarity. They're looking to say that we as, 23, we as the 19 Pueblos wanna work with our Apache um, relatives as well as people from the Navajo Nation come together as they did during the redistricting process. As we see, they say, when we work together, we can, make, we can enact change, we can do, you know, inform public policy and show political will, mm-hmm. but then we see the divide here, and that happened with the differences in, in administrations. As we saw, the Navajo Nation elected uh, a new president, yes. and this is a new administration that has different procedures, different policies in place, yep. clearly different ideas. Right. Because one and, and the, the not only the president is new, you also have new speaker, council, Navajo Nation Council, and one of their first acts as they when they took order was to, excuse me, was to um, rescind a, a legislation that they had passed in their council that was um, in support of a five mile buffer zone, which is right. half of what the federal government moratorium is right now, mm-hmm. they rescinded it to say, no, we don't want it at all. And so that just shows that that as of right now, while the Pueblo Council of Governors is looking for tribal solidarity, it's just not right there right now. And it's mm-hmm. a little bit split, and you're seeing that play out right now with the Chaco debate.
1: Good recap there, excellent. Martha, um, it's clear the protesters are looking for some kind of, kind of, kind of compromise. Sean mentioned the five mile v- buffer versus the 10 mile. That's a, a tough moving piece because it could be three miles, it could be two miles, who knows what the actual real number is to protect anything. But those who support the secretary said there's a misunderstanding, pointing out the fact that existing leases can remain. Exactly. So what I mean, there's a lot of, how do we parse all this? It's it's, it's hard to follow this. I don't
4: think they're looking for a compromise. I think they're looking for publicity. Gotcha. And I think Merritt is right. Uh, Some of this is coming out of Washington. Mm -hmm. As we know, uh, immediately when this came up, uh, some members of Congress who have nothing to do with New Mexico, uh, jumped on Hallen. Uh, saying right. that she was in the pocket of the environmentalist That's right. That's as right. if the protesters are not in the pocket of the Republican party <laughs> or the oil and gas industry mm-hmm. or both That's right. and so I think it's uh, it's sort of a tempest in a teapot as you say much of the land is is already they were the Navajo were in on the original agreement right. it wasn't as if they were left out right. And a lot of the land that is now going to be circumscribed uh, is not affected, their leases are not affected at all. And so I think it was a big show. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's easy to block that road if you've been up to Chaco because it's (laughs) damn hard to get, darn hard to get in there. You're not gonna go around them, that's for sure. And, uh, And so I think that this is more a political issue than a real issue about rights to drill and so forth. Let me ask
1: you, just a quick follow up on that. Uh, should Secretary Holland consider that five mile buffer a little more seriously the first time around? Or does the distance really not matter? It, it would have been just a I, protest I think anyway. If
4: it was five, they'd say, We want one. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and I, it has been a national heritage site mm-hmm. since 1987. Right. It isn't as if this is new, and no, I don't think. Uh, you know, you give a little more, a little more, and they're insatiable. That's right. Uh, the oil and gas people are not going to give up. They're just going to want more and more. So. Well,
1: there you go. Exactly on that. Uh, Merritt, interestingly, uh, uh, Martha just kind of uh, referred to this. Congress, Republican led Congress, is really after Secretary Holland in a lot of ways. This, her ties to an indigenous environmental group, the committee says it has concerned about a possible conflict of interest because Secretary Holland's daughter, had previously worked with the Pueblo Action Alliance, something Sean had mentioned before, in a previous uh, uh, appearance with us. If, there, even if they even uh, if they could prove this, what does it mean at the end of the day? Is this something bad on Miss Holland? Does this mean this corruption? Well, I don't get what this committee is
2: going after. Well, here. what Secretary Holland's family chooses to do is what. what they choose to do. Um, But I do think there's been a definite blurring of lines around the Hatch Act. And we just saw that with uh, the press secretary. Um, People are campaigning all the time now. We see this in uh, New Mexico. We had some problems with the Secretary of State and some of the emails she was sending during Mm -hmm. a previous election season. Mm -hmm. And I think our elected officials actually need to govern and operate our government Mm Uh, and not be on the campaign trail all the time. Okay. And so if there's a little criticism about uh, stumping too much and advocating uh, a political position too much rather than actually administering the cabinet department, mm-hmm. that may be valid. Okay. Um, that, that said, um, House mm-hmm. Republicans are, uh, the House is always going to be more emotional and more visceral, whether it's House Republicans or House Democrats in the majority. Right. So, That's you right. know, of course there there is some uh, uh, emotion uh, behind these charges.
1: Let me ask you, uh, Sean, about it though. Um, the Western Energy Alliance says Ms. Holland and her senior officials have granted special access to Pueblo Action Alliance and its allies and helped the group lobby members of Congress. That 's a little icky, but how bad is that like how bad is bad when it comes to lobbying? Does that sound awful to you? Is this something that needs investigation hmm. what 's your sense of that one?
3: Um, I wonder where were these Republicans at with the last interior secretary and you know. their ties to oil and gas industry and previous sec- uh, interior secretaries as well mm-hmm. it 's interesting that now that you have that's You're throwing stones at somebody who's now caring for environmental concerns when oil and gas dominates that department. Mm -hmm. And I always like to look at the layers of what's happening underneath and everything. Mm -hmm. I think what's also significant to understand is that the Bureau of Land Management is also working on creating tribal consultation efforts on new oil and gas leases, as well as other public land efforts. I wonder too if, um, you know, oil and gas is concerned that more tribes across the country will either delay, block, or prevent more oil and gas explorations in other areas let's, let's across the country.
1: This is interesting. Our th- nation's watching this scenario play mm-hmm. out with with plans, perhaps. This is interesting. Totally. And, yeah. and so,
3: you know, the 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 BLM is currently, and this is again a, a, a department that uh, is under the Interior. So this is, you know, an, an initiative from Interior. Um, sorry, Secretary Holland. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, And and what it is is it's, it's for the first time, providing consultation from tribal communities who are in areas where Bureau of Land Management um, operates public lands, either for oil and gas, or recreation, or, or any other type of development. And, and essentially, you're bringing tribal communities to the table for the very first time. Mm-hmm. And it's consultation. It's really even, it's almost, it's not even much. Consultation, yeah. you, can, you don't have to follow the consultation. But to me, I wonder if there's a concern from oil and gas individuals that other tribal nations who, who do oppose right, oil sure. and gas in a more strict and, and sol- com- sorry, uh, solidary type sure. of way will stop some, some of these development efforts. Now, this is also goes to show, as we're seeing with the Navajo Nation, not all tribal communities are opposed to oil and gas operations some of the largest oil and gas operators are Native American tribes in this country. Right. And so th- I think that's also what we're seeing here. We're seeing the various dynamics that Native American communities are, are not a monolith. Right. We are very diverse and we all have various different interests and we all have different ways of making money. Excellent points there. In uh, 30 seconds or a little bit less, Martha, i got to ask, when Ms. Holland was
1: appointed, Indigenous communities saw it as a major win, certainly. It was, you know, hopes were super high. And now we have this situation. It, it, you know, does this protest Helps shape the perception of Ms. Holland here in New Mexico. Does this do anything about her standing here at all with locals?
4: I don't think so. I think she's done a good job. Most people realize that. They're delighted that we have a New Mexico citizen who's also an indigenous person. That's Uh, that's a first. And Mm -hmm. we need that for the state. Mm -hmm. Uh, In terms of the, did you say granting lobbying? Uh, You know, I I spent 30 years in Washington in the belly of the beast, you don't grant lobbying. You go and try to knock on the door and maybe you can get in and maybe not, but she she doesn't have the really ability to grant lobbying.
1: Yeah, we'll see how that plays out. Reputation's an interesting thing, but around here she's just doing what she can, absolutely.
0: Friday night at 7 on New Mexico in Focus, correspondent Antonia Gonzalez gets reaction to the Chaco Park withdrawal as she speaks with a former governor of Acoma Pueblo. Right now on the podcast, I'll toss things back over to Gene and the line opinion panel to talk about a proposed policy change at Albuquerque Public Schools that would require the district to deny enrollment to students with past disciplinary issues.
1: A new policy proposal would require Albuquerque Public Schools to deny enrollment to a student who has been expelled from any school in the previous 12 months. Now, that's with a sign-off from an APS higher up. We'll talk about that. The proposal is expected to go to the district cabinet and superintendent for approval before the next school year. And, Sean, under the proposal, previous expulsions aren't the only criteria for blocking enrollment. APS would have to deny a student if they are deemed, quote, detrimental to the safety or welfare of APS students or personnel, end quote. That language seems pretty broad. That's a big old bucket. Does it mean every transgression any kid has ever... You know, pulled ever, or are we talking about things like guns
3: in school? How did you interpret that when you heard it? Um, well, First, my first thought was like, wow, this is this is any. My first thought was thinking about any student who's who's had disciplinary problems. Now, APS is signaling that this is going to be for more serious issues, infractions like right. violence brought to school or bringing guns to school or violence against other students. Mm-hmm. Um, which you know we all want to have a safe space when you send your child to school, and so you would like to have some deterrent against that type of behavior that happens in the school environment. Mm-hmm. Not only does it affect the learning area, but it also you know could potentially cause harm. And you know as we saw last year, you know you could, students have died in school. Right. Um, but from there my next thought was like okay now we're looking at a class of students who as you know knuckleheads is a kind of an old term sure. but I, th- I thought of the knuckleheads and I'm like well there's a lot of knuckleheads who grow up and become really quality high-quality citizens right. and so why cut that opportunity off for education at such a young age when and when, and, and not look at ways to give them opportunities to you know, learn, to educate, to get better. Mm -hmm. Um, And then my next thought from there was like, where are these kids going to go to school? And I was like, oh, well, is this going to boost charter school enrollment? And is that something APS wants? APS should have made, Martha, someone on the APS board made reference, like there
1: could be potentially a charter school for kids that have been expelled. I don't know about that discipline in that Uh school. That would be kind of interesting.
4: What the person (laughs) said was, maybe there's a place we can send them. Right. Maybe. Uh, To me, uh, as a former psychologist in the public schools, and the schools were my clients, this is the dumbest thing I've heard ever. Uh, Let's look at the downstream effects. So you kick the kid out of school when they're 12, 14 years old. They can't get in any other school. What happens? They fall into the drug culture. They fall into the street culture. Not gonna be too long till they're in, in jail. Uh, You've made, maybe, uh, somebody that's incarcerated off and on for the rest of their life. What's that going to cost in public money? I mean, even if you don't care about their life. So I just think it is such a misguided uh, situation. It's not a good idea. And there's one other factor that has not been mentioned. Uh, National, federal law for kids that are in special ed and some of these are going to be special ed kids that's, that's right. why they're causing trouble and right. so forth the law says they are entitled to a free and a public public appropriate public education mm-hmm. that's the law mm-hmm. what's APS going to do about that That's right
1: Once one kid's thrown out and they have an attorney and they take it all the way they need to take it, maybe state Supreme Court, that would be a mess for them. While I get you on on this subject, uh, we talked at this table many years ago. You've been a part of this conversation about the school-to-prison pipeline. Is this one of those deals where people don't understand the ramifications here, how this might be a slippery slope? I'm kind of at thing. a
4: loss, Jean, why the educators don't understand. Now, there may be people out there on the street that have never thought of it. Maybe they don't have kids, it, it's just not on their radar. Mm-hmm. These are school professionals. Mm-hmm. How they could not have that on their radar, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's making them look both incompetent and, and short-sighted. Right. Uh, it's, it's not good for the system as a whole, what's happening here? Mm-hmm. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's going to undermine confidence of parents whose th- kids are not in trouble. That's right. You know That's what's right. going to happen to my kid next? That's right.
1: Some things don't change. When I was in high school, uh, the kids that either dropped out or were thrown out, they always, those are the ones in the parking lot selling drugs. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. They would they still came to school. Yep. They just weren't going to class. They had nowhere else to go, so they came to school. Um, Merritt, interesting that. Uh, I'm sorry that Martha just mentioned school board secretary Courtney Jackson suggesting placing these kids, who are denied enrollment in a non-traditional education environment, so they can receive the support they need. Does IFES have a responsibility to make that happen? Is it who who
2: who's she asking
1: to do this? Well,
2: I I I couldn't agree with my fellow panelists Mm -hmm. uh, more. There are very different uh, layers of misbehavior. You've got your knuckleheads. You've got your truly bad kids. children have a right to education, dumping kids uh, out, to mm-hmm. your point, to Martha's point, they're, they're gonna go somewhere. Mm-hmm. If you look at the endemic poverty and drug use in our state, this only perpetuates it. Um, uh, the, the incredible lack of planning or safety net behind this is uh, truly breathtaking, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. There, an alternative school is not a shocking or revolutionary idea, and let's be clear: I'm not an I'm not an educator. Yeah. I'm an econ major who works in PR. Hello, <laughs> right. and I'm thinking of this. <laughs> this is this is non I have no school board experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very typical in Silver City. They, they created an alternative school okay. um, years ago. Right, right. Uh, Fairfax County, which is one of the uh, Fairfax County, Virginia, which is one of the best school districts in the state. No uh, Twenty years ago. <laughs> developed a school, they had alternative, an alternative school, and then uh, if that did not work out, a truly last chance school, mm-hmm. and you spent half the day uh, f- fulfilling your high school credits, and the other half day working construction. Oh, wow. So, mm-hmm. if school was really not going to work out for you, you mm-hmm. actually had a trade so you could go get a job. Wow. You know, Instead we, of just we,
1: jettisoning the kid out in the street and saying, good luck, and right. we'll see you down the road. Right, yeah.
2: we cannot figure this out. We really cannot uh, figure this out. I mean, shame on you, APS. Mm -hmm. That's that's really all I have to say.
1: You know, I want to go back to something, uh, Sean, you mentioned. Um, One of the district officials quoted in in that uh, journal article that came out this week mentioned the proposed policy could be aimed at kids who have brought guns to school but weren't disciplined for it. This is my big question. How, How can you not know the names of every child that has brought a gun onto an APS campus? Just let me get that out of my system. What do you what do you what do you think about this idea about a, a, a targeting kids that have brought guns to school?
3: I, I mean honestly I think that that's probably a bit of misinformation. You're right. I mean how do you how do, how can you? First it also shows a lack of distrust within your schools, your principals you know, assistant principals, teachers, you're saying you're incompetent enough to not be able to provide all this information. So one, I don't even know if that's entirely true. Um, One thing that really sticks out to me a lot of this as well is, you know, all politics is local and, you know, while the school board itself is um, nonpartisan, you know, there's not Democrats, Republicans listed on the school board. Mm -hmm. um, When we looked at the new makeup of the school board, we looked at campaign donations and the school board, the majority now, um, we found out of the new new people elected to it had a lot of Republican backed financial donors. And so it's really interesting to understand, like, is there a political motive behind the school board that is not supposed to be partisan, but it is made up of Republicans? That's right. That's
1: right. And there are policy issues that are showing that coming to the, to the, to the surface now. Uh, Martha Albu- Albuquerque Teachers Federation President Ellen Bernstein, we all know her. She was quoted in the general piece saying, quote, everybody makes mistakes. And if you can't ever rectify the mistake, what do you do? That's a fundamental question, it seems to me. That seems to be the first question that should be on the table before you get to where we are with these school superintendent folks.
4: Is she right on that? Well, if you can't rectify it, have you tried rectifying it? That's a core question here. Mm -hmm. Or just kick them out. You know, is there a school within a school model? Some some districts around the country have that. Mm -hmm. You know, where uh, kids can go to cool off, they can go to get counseling and that sort of thing. You have to have tried before you can say, well, it's hopeless. That's right. That's right.
1: Exactly right. Meredith. let's finish up for us, if you would, um, on this idea of second chances. In our legislature, just this past session, we had a second chance bill passed for juveniles who were doing life sentences. But we can't seem to find a second chance waited for a kid that screwed up on on a school campus. Something seems a little off here. Is the school bird off the beat here? Meaning this is an era of second chances. We've been talking about this here for about a decade here in New Mexico, but this seems much more punitive. What's your thought on the flow? Are they in the flow of of society here?
2: What what are they? I I think I think this is completely off, and you you have to think about uh, again to the point: where are these children going to go? Are they going to go get a responsible job? Are they going to have the skill? Is anybody going to hire them? No. Why
4: on
1: no. the street i got thrown out of school the door slams in your face that's right i,
2: I, I mean no one has thought past well they're they're not going to be in school with my child i mean th- this makes no sense isolating these children further gets nothing done and i don't feel like this is a particularly uh a liberal or conservative uh position it's mm-hmm. just simply a matter of our society and an obligation to educate our children, which is right. kind of um, develop nation 101. That's right. This, this you would is, think. It, That's right. yeah. This is not. <laughs> <laughs> this well isn't said. Very very complex.
1: Sean, actually, I want to uh, ask Sean to finish up for me. I, I, not that I didn't love your point there, uh, but is this the time, Sean, for groups that represent kids of color? To come to the forefront now, not after this is potentially in place, but right now, and say, no, 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 no,
3: no, we need to talk about this. Is this one of those moments? This is a, definitely a moment to bring yeah. that up because you know we're, we are going to see a disproportionate amount of students who are disciplined who come from communities of color, mm-hmm. and and also when you look at um, other school districts, who might even want to see this as a potential model to deal with their own issues. Like who's this going to affect in the very end of it? In all, the very end of it all. Right. So yeah, definitely this is a time for I think everybody to stand up and say we That's don't right. want this. Because right. what does that school that or this space that they're looking to create? that sounds like a jail right exactly would you want to be seen walking in and out of that school i mean talk about the
1: some kind of mark or something you're just a different person in society at that point so
0: and our final segment of the podcast this week gene and the panel react to a recent legal settlement announcement 500 million dollars from the pharmacy chain walgreens for its role in the opioid crisis here's gene in the panel welcome
1: back to our line opinion panel for one last segment the pharmacy chain walgreens has agreed to pay new mexico 500 million dollars to settle the state's legal claims over the company's role in the opioid epidemic now that settlement is the largest in new mexico's history of court battles with opioid manufacturers and distributors as well and it marks the last in a series of deals struck with final pharmacy carrying companies including albertson cvs kroger and walmart get this those four chains settled with the state last fall for a combined 274 MILLION DOLLARS. THE WALGREENS MONEY IS GOING TO BE SPREAD ACROSS THE NEXT 15 YEARS. THIS IS INTERESTING TOO. I WANT MERIT TO t- TOUCH ON THIS, 55% GOING TO LOCAL MUNICIPALITIES, 45% OF IT GOING TO THE STATE. Now, BEYOND THAT BREAKDOWN, WE DON'T HAVE MANY SPECIFICS, MERIT, ON HOW THE FUNDS WILL BE USED. MAYBE A LITTLE MORE TRANSPARENCY MIGHT HELP HERE, BUT IN YOUR INITIAL THOUGHT ABOUT HOW THE MONEY BREAKS DOWN AND WHO GETS IT, IS that is THIS FAIR TO EVERYONE INVOLVED?
2: I think I THINK THAT SEEMS RIGHT. IT WORRIES mm-hmm. ME. Uh, that uh, there is not the infrastructure to um, accept that money. Right. I mean, yeah. we, we don't have uh, the providers to really manage that money and provide treatment. And so uh, I hope the state would look at using their portion of the money to help create that infrastructure ah. um, okay. or consider uh, an investment fund to sustain a behavioral health network. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that would be the most sensible that would be the most sensible thing because mm-hmm. uh I mean, when we got our notes from uh the show, mm-hmm. uh one of the questions was, uh, you know, can the state uh, uh manage this money effectively? My first thought was, No, of course not. <laughs> uh and million yeah, and money. it just I DON'T FEEL LIKE WE HAVE A GOOD TRACK RECORD WITH IT, BUT CERTAINLY OUR RURAL AREAS HAVE BEEN HURT SO BADLY, AND I FEEL LIKE DISPROPORTIONATELY Mm -hmm. BY THE OPIOID CRISIS, I LIKE SEEING IT GO TO MUNICIPALITIES. THE PROBLEM IS THEY'RE THE ONES WHO LACK THE MOST INFRASTRUCTURE TO REALLY administer those right. funds. That's and right. so if the state could really focus on helping those municipalities get the infrastructure and the providers they need, I think that would be a really good use of this it's one interesting
1: point, Sean, that the Merit's making here, this idea of hot spots around the state, and there are for opioid epidemics, but her previous point about rural versus urban, Albuquerque's battle is certainly different than Clovis or wherever the case may be. Should there be more stipulations about how this money goes to certain areas around the state, as opposed to how we usually do it Albuquerque and Santa Fe grab the biggest portion and then we all just kind of move on and don't think about it. Is this an opportunity here to really lean into some rural areas of our state?
3: I think it is, yes, incredibly, incredible opportunity here. Uh, opioid This whole opioid era of addiction affected every single person. Yeah. Um, I went to high school, I graduated high school in 2006 and at mm-hmm. that point the, the opioids were already around schools. Um, students were abusing them, using them, and, you know, 17 years later, the, the amount of people who have already died or are still in their addiction yes. is staggering. Yes. And so, and that's across the state. That's everybody. That's, uh, and, and that's not just even for people in my generation. That's all of us here that experience that at some point. Like, we know, we're several layers, if not one direct layer, or personally from experiencing that ourselves. Right. So, yeah, it needs to be distributed in a way that will support rural health systems and just our rural people. We're talking a combined $775 million. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, to
1: merit's point, why aren't we out building stuff like right now? This would seem to be the opportunity, you
3: know, to really get after this. Uh, I, that's the question. I don't know. I, yeah. I don't have an answer to that. And this yeah. is something that I've been trying to think about as to what 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 is staggering to the state that's that's going to prevent us from spending this immediately. Now there are some layers of how the state can distribute it and mm. and, and where it's going to go. And mm-hmm. you know, a potential investment might actually like store that money away so it can grow and build, and we won't be able to tap that for any type of immediate infrastructure. Right. But I don't know. I really wish I could answer yeah. that. And I know that you need my answer for no, this stuff like this. Fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough. Um, interesting, uh, Martha. This past
1: session. Opioid problem bills largely failed in the roundhouse, as we call it. Just something it didn't quite connect there. Might this additional additional money? Might this money change some minds up there? This well, next let's coming hope session. So mm-hmm.
4: they didn't fail so much as they just died. Thank you. Uh, That's what happened. They never got to the floor. And it's been such a crisis, I am amazed that they could not prioritize that long enough Mm -hmm. to look at, there were two bills, I I believe, Mm -hmm. that should have been uh, given some serious consideration. Mm -hmm. And that did not happen.
1: One of them might have been House Bill 263 would have created overdose prevention centers where drug users could safely consume controlled substances. Sounds very European, but that's where we are right now, which would include fentanyl. And there was H B two sixty three that had first been introduced in twenty twenty one. Let me kick over here to, to Merrick. Let's stay on our legislature. What do they what do these folks need to do? They they I won't say they're not taking it seriously, but something's not quite connecting on how to attack the problem. Again, is five hundred million dollars the lever to make this happen?
2: It could be. Um it- It's, I I was really puzzled uh, Mm -hmm. by the legislature this session. I mean, you looked at the glaring need for child welfare legislation Mm -hmm. and nothing happened. So I I don't know that the Mm -hmm. legislature is is going to be the answer. Mm it has to. I think it may have to become an executive priority, uh, and and I don't like that either. It's I don't okay. like giving too much power uh, to a single branch of government, and that's what worries so, me so much about getting to huge windfalls like this. Because our government is not functioning well, and it's not serving it's not serving us well. So, in an ideal world, yes, the legislature would take this action, and I would encourage them to do so and consider uh, the infrastructure and the network we need to mm-hmm. actually get people the care they need, which we do not have right, right now. That's right. But uh, it, I'm just, I'm very worried that this is going to be a windfall that goes nowhere. Right. I, I'm hearing you.
1: I'm absolutely hearing you. Sean, um, interestingly, addiction and substance use disorder is not our only problems here. I'm wondering, I know we're going to have stipulations on how the money can be used, but there's an argument to be made there are other impacts of... DRUG USE LIKE FENTANYL AND SUCH THAT COULD USE SOME INFUSION OF CAPITAL AS WELL. DO YOU ANTICIPATE PERHAPS A BATTLE OVER HOW WE CAN USE THIS MONEY? BECAUSE JUST USING IT FOR OPIOID ABATEMENT, AGAIN, THAT'S A VERY WIDE TUNNEL TO DRIVE THROUGH. A LOT OF THINGS COULD FIT IN THERE, SO TO SPEAK.
3: ANY ANTICIPATION THERE? I MEAN, WE HAVE TO LOOK AT THE PROVIDERS OF FENTANYL. I DON'T THINK THAT, YOU KNOW, THE AG IS GOING TO BE ABLE TO SUE ANY CARTELS AND WIN A SETTLEMENT. Right. SO, YEAH, there, THERE COULD POTENTIALLY BE AN ISSUE WHERE, Hey, look. This this is our current addiction crisis right now, mm-hmm. and 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 fentanyl is 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 at, at, at the at the peak right now. We don't even know what's going to come after that. Right. So right. so there could be another drug and another addiction yeah. issue that comes through because it's unfortunate that, you know, the United States has lost the war on drugs and Americans love their drugs and the addiction issues here across the country and, and what we see in the state are not going anywhere. They're only accelerating into higher and higher doses. This makes
1: my question, question to Martha more interesting still. Uh, there's, these funds will be allocated over 15 years. Mm-hmm. Is there a reasonable time we could expect results from something like this? Are we at that place in society? In 10 years, we want this better. In five years, we want this better. Is it, are we there yet?
4: If you've got any plan, you gotta say, what's the first thing we do? And Jean, I am astounded that this has been in litigation for years why isn't there already a plan? That's they had to know true. that this was coming, we, that this was right. coming. they didn't that's know right. how much, but the steps could be could have been that's outlined right. and right. now we're caught flat-footed, right. frankly. Uh, Merritt is right, there's no plan, there should have been a plan. Yeah. And Do you trust I, a
1: plan that's gonna be hurriedly put together?
4: Not much, yeah. no. And one thing that, I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, they got Walgreens and some of the other legitimate providers, mm-hmm. not a word about the illegal uh, manufacturers of right. fentanyl, right. nothing. Uh, what is go- being done about that? Are they trying to see who they are, where they are, mm-hmm. and, and what is their supply chain? Yep. Uh, Walgreens and the rest of them, uh, they probably did a cost-benefit analysis and said we're gonna make more money on fentanyl than we're gonna pay out that's in, right. in a settlement. That's right. uh, but that's right. the illegal folks seem to me to just be off the radar. That's
1: right, that's right, interesting point there. WISH WE HAD MORE TIME FOR THIS ONE. IT'S A BIG ONE FOR NEW MEXICO. BUT THANKS AGAIN TO OUR LINE PANEL AS ALWAYS THIS WEEK. BE SURE TO LET US KNOW WHAT YOU THINK ABOUT ANY OF THE TOPICS THESE FOLKS COVERED ON OUR FACEBOOK, TWITTER, OR INSTAGRAM PAGES. AND CATCH ANY EPISODE YOU MIGHT HAVE MISSED ON THE PBS APP, WHICH IS PRETTY COOL, YOUR ROKU OR YOUR SMART TV.
0: Thanks to Gene, our panelists, and everyone else who contributed to the podcast this week. Now, I want to wish everyone in New Mexico a happy Pride Month. There are events and celebrations going on all week in Santa Fe, leading up to the big day, Saturday, June 24th, for Pride on the Plaza. Keep an eye out for another episode of the podcast in the next couple of days when I sit down with Kevin Bowen, Executive Director of the Santa Fe Human Rights Alliance, the group that's putting on this year's events. It's a wide-ranging conversation where we touch on the state of LGBTQ rights in the U.S. right now, New Mexico's position near the top of the country for equality protections, and of course we talk about what to expect throughout the week and this weekend during the 30th anniversary of Santa Fe Pride. The new series of events sound like they're going to be a ton of fun and full of joy, but. Kevin offered an eye-opening dose of caution, too, one that should remind listeners that even in friendly Santa Fe, organizers are acutely aware of the wave of anti-LGBTQ sentiment across the nation. You'll hear that when he talks about security measures in place for Pride 2023. Now, thanks again, everyone. Please keep an eye out on our social media pages. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube throughout the week. We'll be posting updates and other news items leading up to our show on Friday night. Thanks again, everyone. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for June 20th, 2023. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone.